Hello, Sobertown. Welcome to the Sobertown podcast. Let's jump on that sober train and ride right into the incredible, wonderful world of sobriety. Real quick, I want to mention SobertownPodcast.com. We have tons of resources there to help you fight cravings, build mindsets. It's a place where you can become the architect of your own recovery. Also, we have a list of sober communities you can get involved with. Sober communities are just vital to our recovery, finding like-minded people that we can relate with. There's I Am Sober, Boom Rethink to Drink, Addicted in Film Movie Club with Ted Perkins, The Phoenix, Getting Sober dot, dot, dot again, This Naked Mind, Sobertown Facebook Group, All of these are amazing communities with amazing sober warriors on a journey trying to get sober just like you and I. Today we have an amazing guest, a very, very good friend of mine, Nat QC. How are you doing this morning, Nat? I'm very nervous. I rarely talk about myself, so this is a difficult, difficult thing to do for me. And I'm very insecure, and I have a very loud voice in my head, always telling me that, oh, it's not interesting enough, or people have it much worse than you. So it's hard to quiet those those thoughts and think that I'm worth listening. So You are worth listening, that. And I thank you for coming here, being so brave, and being so vulnerable also. So go ahead. Tell us where you want to start. Okay. I took some notes and it's. I feel like I'm maybe talking too much about things that are not relevant to sobriety, but we'll edit things that are not relevant. But I, I really wanted to kind of explain the, the root of my drinking problems. I think it has a a lot to do with the feeling of not fitting anywhere and wanting to kind of be out of my mind or out of my body. Something terrible happened in my childhood, and I don't know what, because I forgot basically everything except from a little bit of the bullying that I remember. And it's as if it was another person and I do not know her. I have no recollection. Like, let's say my sister is telling me a story. Oh, do you remember that doll that you had? And I'm like, "Mm, no, blank. It's like a big, dark blank. It's like I was born at 15. And I was told that when I was five years old, I peed in my pants at kindergarten. And I did it again also in grade one when I was six. But at that point, the little girl in front of me made sure that everyone found out in the class. And she screamed, not peed in her pen and it's all under the chair. And that day she started a great career in bullying me. And she was joined by a lot of people. I read in recent years, that these type of urinary urinary problems often points toward sexual abuse. I can't remember where I read it, but at that time in the 70s, no, no one really ever cared 
to find out what was wrong with me or what was the problem. And I kept on being bullied a lot. I discovered books at the age of seven because my grandmother gave me a kind of a big girl books for my birthday. And it was about Le Petit Fel. Okay, it's in French. It's two well-behaved little girls that are age six and seven, and they are kind of perfect in, in every way. So I really wanted to identify with those little girls and be the, the, the best I could be and try not to disappoint my parents, try to be good in school. And it kind of became my persona in my enlarged family. Like, oh, Nelly, she's such a good example. And you, you should try to be like her, like to my sisters or, or my cousin. But it, it wasn't really me. I was just trying to be so good and appear so perfect on the inside. And I think that that contributed even more to my isolation because I, I was too much into books and also too much into trying to be the good girl. The truth, however, was that I was in L every single day throughout elementary school and high school. I felt all the time like the reject, the ugly little duckling. I was always the last one to be chosen at any sports or activity, the one being pushed, made fun of. I had a few friends, but they never once took my defense. And it's, it was like I was told I was the ugliest person on earth, especially because I was having to wear glasses at age. Despite this little misperfect image that I was trying to portray, I had really bad grades and behavior at school because I was always talking and giggling. And it was weird because my friend's mother didn't like them to play with me outside of school because I was too excited, I was too much, I was uh, too wild, and I had crazy ideas for fun things to do all the time. So I started babysitting at the age of 10 or, 10 or 11. And at that time I was paying for half of my clothes at 10 or 11. Otherwise, my clothes were often coming from Goodwills, even the panties. And I always dreaded having to wear used underwear. You know, it's like, uh, it's not that my parents were really, really poor. It's just that my father didn't want to put money on clothing. Like we were well fed and we had a house and we didn't miss on anything like we had lots of toys but to him clothes were not important so we we didn't have nice clothes and so it was hard also during the teenage years to not be like everyone else and not have the cool shoes or the cool t-shirts 
So babysitting helped me provide for myself at a, at a young age. I was really, really small. And I didn't grow up before I was 15 and a half years old. And because of that, I had to wear kids clothes, even in high school. And in the 80s, kids, kids clothes really stood out as kids. It was not like today. Today, you have really nice stuff for kids, but not in, in those days. And I remember very clearly one day, the entire school laughing at me because I had bought a really colorful coat. And I had to stand there and people were pointing at me and laughing at me in the school, on the bus. It was a nightmare. And that, that moment, I vividly remember like just going numb or I can put an iceberg around my heart and say, but this is it, I, I'm done with human beings. It's so superficial and it's so hurtful. I'm just gonna do my own things. I'm gonna read. I isolated, even at home in the basement uh, where I had my bedroom and my, my parents really, didn't bother, like, my father didn't want to be disturbed, and my mother was chronically depressed. So it, it was just, don't take too much space, and don't disturb uh, anyone. And it's weird, because now, when I look at pictures of that little girl, and I just cannot believe how cute she was, like, it's a... I, I'm looking at another person and I don't understand why I was so bullied because there was no reason, first of all, for anyone to be bullied. But I wasn't the ugliest person on earth and I wasn't mean and I wasn't bad. So it's hard to, to reconcile. I don't know, it's as if the bullies knew instinctively you have something broken inside or that you are fragile and they, they go for more destruction. I, I don't know why. During my early teenage years, I witnessed a, a female that I knew sexually assault her nine-month-old baby right in front of me. She, she just sexually assaulted him. And... I was so shocked. I told her that was not good. My mind could not even comprehend that a woman could do that because we are told that men are bad and you have to be careful and you have to watch out. And there are so many uh, weird situations with, you know, you know what I mean? It, it, but to see a woman do that, it just broke me and I told her it wasn't right and I was ridiculed for it. She told me I was a Miss Goody Two Shoes, that it didn't mean anything and I was the person who was wrong to think so badly and I was rejected 
and cut out from, from them entirely. And I just put that in do not open books with the rest. It's like, okay, there's this big giant blank area of my life before I'm 15. And I'm just going to add more stuff in the pile because it says if I'm not strong enough to deal with things and I'm just not going to bother. And at that time in those years, it's like we didn't knew that we were required to report abuse or tell about it. Like we just tell adults, but if they ignore us or if they don't do anything or if they accuse us, then we're kind of left with the shame and the hurt. At 15, I discovered alcohol and drugs and it was like, oh my God, yes. This is the magic potion I had been wanting to uh, suppress, suppress everything. It made me less shy. I was able to go to parties and be with people and not feel like myself. I made friends during those time. And it's, how can I say? I was finally having fun. It was often too much. I would drink too fast, too much. I was uh, the girl that would end up sobbing and crying in a corner. Oh my God. Uh, you know, I was not really fun to be around after a while. I, I didn't have controls like the others, you know. And whenever I tried drugs, it, it was like, okay, I want to be on this 24-7 all the time. There, there's no in-between. So I realized really soon that drugs were very, very dangerous for me because I could not control myself and I wanted that too much. And it was as if I had a voice in my head. If you follow that path, you are going to die. And this is not your journey. And, and I, I kind of stopped trying drugs. Or also, I, I did not have anybody in my entourage that would connect me to good drug dealers. And I did not have a lot of money either. So all of that contributed to me putting that aside. And the same thing during my college years, I was drinking, I would say occasionally, because I had to pay for my clothes and my bus and everything. So I, I could not afford to drink as much as I wanted to. And I was on a good roll after that. After college, I really wanted to study literature because books were my passion. I was really reading all the time and I just loved it more than anything. But everybody convinced me that was a bad idea. I was the only one in my family on my mother's side to ever go to a university. And they all convinced me that literature would not feed me and I 
could not do that and it would be terrible for me to make that choice. So instead of following my dreams, I went into mathematics. Can you imagine <laughs> the difference? The reason for that was that I was in a co-op program and I was able to study one semester, then work one semester, study one semester, and work, etc., etc. This was the only way I was able to uh, afford going to, to school. And I would not have had that opportunity with, uh, with literature. As I started to work more, my drinking increased. I also uh, learned that hard liquors were not my thing because I would end up in blackouts. And uh, it was really, really bad. I, I would kind of be in a bar and then wake up, it seems like hours later, and I was in another place and I didn't know how I got there, how come I was with those people. It was really frightening. And there was one time where I woke up during the night and there was a stranger in my bed and I could not even remember getting out of the, my apartment that I was sharing with my girlfriend. So I, I was just totally losing it. So it's similar to the things with drug. I said, okay, I think hard liquor is a little bit too much for you. <laughs> if you want to live, I think we better stick with beer and wine. And I kind of learned how to be a good drinker. And I would really learn how to come really fast to my sweet spot and have fun and be able to maintain that sweet spot for a long time and not to have too many hangover because I have a body that metabolizes really well and I could drink as much as barely any guy I know. And it's funny because in my young adult life, it was my girlfriend's boyfriends that did not like them hanging out with me. They were like, oh, no, no, don't hang out with her. Don't be with her. She's partying too much. She has too many boyfriends and she has too many wild ideas. So just ignore her or don't go with her. When I was 20, upon my return from an internship in Vancouver, my parents told me that they were getting a divorce. And during that summer, my world just collapsed. My mother told me that she had been sexually abused by her father starting around her second year, as well as most of her sisters and friends. And uh, I also learned at that time that my beloved grandmother knew about it and she didn't do anything except telling my mother that she was a slut and she was to be blamed for it. And at, at that time, I felt physically in my bone that I was also probably abused because I was going there quite often. I was babysit there, but nothing ever came to my conscience. It, it stayed in the black, dark hole. 
And I just started to drink more and to go out more. So it's not like I was a drunk because I was going out in bars and having fun and I was drinking all the time, but it didn't count because it was just, I was going out and having fun. You know what I mean? In my mind, it was not dangerous and I was in control. And after my parents' divorce and all the revelation, I went into a major life crisis and I was like oh, sharing with everyone and I was really victimized. I was going on and on about how oh, my life was difficult and I was really that person with the negative energy that in all the boundaries <laughs> session, they tell you that you need to cut yourself from, you know, oh, this is bad. This person is bad and she needs help. So, uh, you know, just get rid of her. And I was that person and I realized that, but there basically was no one met me with empathy or compassion. At one point, my best friends gathered together and they told me that they could no longer listen to me, that it was too difficult for them. It was, I was going through things that were too difficult and they wanted to put an end to the relationship. And I, I totally understand them and the way they reacted, but it's just crushed me even more. And with all my childhood and everything I've been through, it was like the ultimate rejection. And I was mad because I was telling myself, how come they cannot cope with me and my problems for, let's say, an hour? I have to deal with that 24-7. So that was it. At, at that point, I, I decided that I was just going to read and work. And I would not try to have deep friendships with people. And I would just say, whenever you ask me, oh, I am doing good. I'm fine. Everything is perfect. And I kind of decided that uh, that was it for me. I returned to my solitude and I put really strong barriers and I rarely share anything about my inner life after that. And I drank for 30, 30 years. And I also rapidly categorize people who judge others based on appearance and Whenever I see that a person has a wrong impression of me, it's like I, I don't even try to engage or change their mind. I just put them in a kind of a ah, don't bother bucket. They are just going to hurt me uh, anyway. I haven't been lucky in the friendship, but I've been lucky, I, I think, with the love. I met my boyfriend in my early 20s. And we really had a love at first sight experience. And at the beginning, we were in a long distance relationship for three years. And we're still together after 30 years, 32 years. And he gets me 
on a profound level and he loves me as I am and he gives me a lot of support. And every single day he tells me that I'm beautiful. And at the beginning I was like, oh no, uh, I'm not, or I'm not good. Or, you shouldn't be with me, but it's like 365 days a year. It kind of put an imprint in your head. Like it's the same thing with violence. Like let's say I, I would be violated and tell every day that I'm ugly. I would start to believe it. But now it's like, oh my God, I have this person who thinks I'm a, a good person and wants to listen to me and loves me for who I am and who can see behind all the barriers and all the walls, you know, like from heart to heart. So that, that gave me hope. I'm just going to share a few things again about my 20s. During those years, my mother told me that she regretted having kids because life was too hard. She had been suicidal since she was 11 years old. And that, that was really hard for me. Like my own mother regretting to have me in, in this life. And my father was also, during those years, regularly calling me to tell me that he was going to end his life. And he was living five hours away from me. I wasn't able to do anything. I wasn't able to get there fast. It was really, really, really hard. So the last thing I'm going to add about my, my childhood and early years is that the family priest who married and baptized a lot of people in my family ended up being accused of 70 counts of child molesting. And when I was volunteering with homeless teens, there were a lot of kids coming to see me where we were doing the volunteer works. And one of the kids told me that an 11 years old kid were molesting his brother. And it really broke my heart. Like, how can a kid sexually assault another kid? Like, it just blew my mind. And I reported that to the organization. I wanted to report that to the police, but they threw me out of the organization. And I was never able to see the kids again. I didn't know their name. I didn't have enough information and I, I couldn't report anything. And I still feel guilty about that because a child confided in me and I did nothing to, to help. And I was the one kicked out and it, it just added to the pile of things that I'm not able to deal with. So to summarize, it's as if for the first 20 years of my life, I was shown that nobody can be trusted. A woman, a man, a parent, a child, a priest, friends. It's like, how many more examples do you need? You know, I, I just kind of went, okay, so this is it. 
I, I need to learn a lesson and the lesson is to beware of human beings because I'm too sensitive, I'm always too much, I'm too different. And it's like people don't easily relate to me or come to me. Maybe now, years after, I realize it might be because I have so many walls and protections and like 15 locks before I can even tell you my name. So of course people are, are not drawn to me because they see my scared face and I'm like, oh my God, someone is talking to me. <laughs> what else is going to happen? But I really felt like a misfit. For 30 years, I was either working really hard or going out and drinking a lot just didn't want to bother anymore. I didn't want to be a nerd. And I just wanted my magic potion because it enabled me to forget about all the dark parts of my life. It was helping me get out of my shell. And I was really kind of proud to be one of the guys because I was, let's say we were with the friends couple or friends acquaintance. I would mostly hang out with the guys because I was talking about jobs and talking, drinking a lot more than the other girls. So I felt more comfortable. I thought that my drinking only became problematic in the last few years of my drinking. But recently I, I read some of my journals and already in 1997, I was trying to cut down on my drinking. I was worried that I had a problem. So that means I had a problem for a long time, but I didn't want to admit it. And I became pregnant twice. And for that, I was able to completely white knuckled, white knot sobriety until I ended nursing my baby. It was like really, really difficult, but I, I was able to do it for, for my kids. I didn't have many friends during those years, except with a few, but that was okay because I really put everything I had on being a mother and being a career woman. And I forgot totally of myself as a person. I realized that Maybe 20 years later, we were asked to do an exercise by HR people about mindfulness. And they were asking, what are your dreams and what do you want and what do you want to do to enjoy yourself? And I could not think of anything. I just put the papers there and it made me realize, oh my God, you just totally lost yourself. You're not there. You're, you're just there for everybody, but there's no that anymore. And my drinking continuously increased, but it was kind of, I convinced myself that we were sophisticated to drink wine with our meal every single night. And we couldn't waste it because it wouldn't be as good the next day. 
you know, because it doesn't taste as good the next day. So I didn't have a problem. Oh no, I was just tasting things and all kinds of new IPAs and new wines. And the liquor store told my boyfriend once that they were keeping a certain wine just for us because like, I think we drank 34 bottles of it because it was not just the only one we drank, but we had so much. And at that point I was like, oh my God, this is really bad. The liquor store keeping stuff for us. And I didn't care about what people thought. So didn't bother me too long, but I was not the one hiding things. I would go to the liquor store and buy a full, a caseload, a, a entire, uh, how do you call that? The basket was full of a bottle of wines and I didn't care. I was telling myself, they're going to think I'm having a big party or I have a lot of people over. So, or I would send my boyfriend so that I, I don't have to go because I was, I would tell him, oh, it's too heavy for me. Can you go buy my big case of wine bottle? It only started to become problematics towards the end because I, I was shaking and I, I needed more and more and more. And I think for the last 10 years, I wanted to moderate or I wanted to stop because I understood that it was getting difficult for me to process all that alcohol. But I was not even to stop even for one day. Like if I would, let's say, manage to stop one day, it would happen maybe four times a year, even though I was telling my dad, myself that very often I was not able to stop. Like, I, I wouldn't make it to, to the night. I was roughly aware of multi-generation traumas. And in my ignorance, I thought that by not saying anything bad about boys or about humanity in general, I was protecting my daughters from my darkness and my history. So I, I never told them, oh, beware, be careful. You know, I, I was thinking that if I would tell them things, it would scare them and put them in a bad place. So I never shared anything with them. And it turned out that one of my daughter was assaulted at our home. And it's the school that informed us weeks afterwards. And she didn't tell us because the young guy threatened to kill her if she mentioned it to anyone. So she was scared. He had beaten her and threatened to kill her many times. And I did report him to the police. And then a total nightmare started for our family because he told people in five different high schools that my daughter was a slut, she was a liar. He continued with the death menace and we were constantly harassed by a lot of people. 
and my girl lost all of her friends. I had to change her from her school to another school because the school principal decided that she had made enough problems now and she was to make friends and talk back to the guy who sexually assaulted her because it was enough. So uh, I told him, okay, just watch me. She's not coming back tomorrow or ever. And this is it. Yeah, I cannot believe it. what side you are taking. The guy committed suicide two weeks after my daughter changed school. And I was overwhelmed by guilt. And it took me a long time to process the fact that I was not guilty, but I felt guilty because I was the one who reported him to the police. I felt like I was part responsible for his death. And to be responsible or to feel responsible, no, no matter if you think it's true or not, for someone's death is soul-breaking. And at that point, my, and my daughter at school was bullied because people were telling her that it was her fault. And it was because of her accusation. And his death was because of her. And I felt because of me. So my drinking took epic proportions at that point. And I feel guilty also because I wasn't there for my family. I just drank. And I think I doubled my drinking. Sometimes I would only sleep a few hours a night. I would kind of lose consciousness. And we were so broken and so hurt, all of us, that we kind of, uh, we were not able to process what was going on. And we did our best, but it, it was a really a time. And my daughter tried to kill herself. She almost died. And we just thought that she was resting in a room before supper. We were downstairs preparing supper. And then the ambulance showed up at our place. And I was like, no, this, this can't be, this is not true. This is, no, she, she's just upstairs resting. We're going to have supper. So I ended up at the hospital and it was really difficult. She went into therapy, group therapy. We had a family group therapy, and I was almost like in a stupor. I was numb. I think at one point, the, the nurses, when I was at the hospital, they, they said, Do you, are you realizing what just happened? Are you there? You know, because I was told to take everything in and not to show my emotion. And I, I wanted to not make the situation about myself, you know. I, I wanted to, to be there. 
But when the ambulance showed up at my door, my body went into a fight or flight response and it kind of stayed there. I, I was blocked there and no matter what I tried, no matter how much I drank, my stress level never went down, never. It was too much to bear. And I lost my stop button. I, I was not able to stop when I drank. There was not enough beer or wine in the quantities that would give me my, my sweet spot, not even for one second. So I decided, okay, I need stronger stuff now. I'm going to go to hard liquors, even though it gives me blackout. Maybe this is what I need. I need to blackout. So I started to hide hard liquors bottle in the kitchen so I would be able to sneak it without everybody seeing me. But luckily, I never got to that point. I, I was preparing for it, but it never got to that point because when my daughter became an adult, the psychiatrist that was treating her told us that she was not allowed to tell our family the entire story because it would breach her confidentiality vows. But she wanted us to know that the teen suicided never regretted the assault. He never felt anything about it, and his death did not have anything to do with the assault or the police thing, and it, it had nothing to do with us. She told us that he was not a good person, and we were too nice to regret him and to feel that we had anything to do with his death. So... At that moment, 10,000 tons of bricks lifted from my shoulder right there. My stress level just went, not, not to a normal level, but just went, oof, wow, finally it got down a notch. Right now, I can reasonably talk to myself and say that I did the right thing by reporting him because he did more assaults after my daughter. So I would have had to deal with the guilt of not reporting him. So I did my best. I was right in reporting him and maybe it didn't help his life trajectory, but it was his choice, his actions, and I am not responsible for his death. I have a little puzzle pieces in a big puzzle. We don't know the entire image. So at that point, I started to really moderate and kind of lower my drinking. And it diminished, but it was kind of a non-stop tape in my mind. Okay, I want more. I need more, but I'm not going to drink more. So I'm just going to have, let's say, five glasses, and then I stop. But I could not think about anything else, anything, anything, anything. 
it was a constant obsession. So I would work and then drink to numb, try to stop, and then think about drinking all the time. And I wasn't really there for my daughters or my boyfriend. I was just kind of a statue in a sofa. I was invited for supper at the house of someone I, I was working with. He was one of my employees. And he wanted me to try gyms because he had a whole collection. And he was a guy from France, so he had all kinds of wine. And that night, I totally lost it. I, I was so drunk. It was one of my worst nights ever. And I felt bad because it was with someone I was working with. He was my employee. I knew I shouldn't do that. But I was not only drinking my glasses, I was drinking my daughter's glasses, my boyfriend's glasses. And he kept on <laughs> giving me more and more and more. So I ended up being sick all night. And at that point, I said, okay, I think that was it. I, I cannot control myself in any situation. During the previous Christmas party at the office, I drove my car and I was really, really drunk. But I had a great idea of taking it outside of the parking lot so that my boyfriend and my daughter who were coming to get me wouldn't have the hassle of trying to find me. So I, I drove my car drunk. I, I knew that it had to stop. And that was my sobriety date. I stopped right there, cold turkey. And it was really, really, really hard. It's as if I did not really want to stop drinking. I wanted to try for the dry January contest. But in the newspaper, they posted about I Am Sober app that might help people with, because in Quebec, we have the February, the dry February contest. So I said, oh, I was able to do part of dry January. So why not check out this app and try the dry February thing because I realized that my skin was better, I was sleeping better, and the trembling stopped, and I had good physical benefits. So I kept on going, and then I discovered that there was a community on I Am Sober, and I started to post and I'm going to say something. I miss those days where we did not have a face and we were not known because I was feeling more inclined to share when I was behind a secret identity because of all my past and because usually people don't respond well when I, when I share. I was feeling more comfortable behind a, a hidden identity. It took me a while to join Zoom. It took me even a longer time to trust people again. And I felt for the first time in years and years and years that I finally belonged somewhere. And that meant the world to me.
I was part of a strong community. I was proud. I was proud to be sober. I was very healthy. I was doing hiking every weekend. I was taking care of myself. I knew who I was, what my dreams were. I was starting to be more present for my daughters. And I was, after maybe 11 months, really doing well. And then I got COVID in November 2020, and I basically never recovered. And a month later, my entire body and my mind were out of whack. And it's a weird and ironic kind of way, because a lot of people have compared some effects of the brain fog and the tiredness that we have to being on your worst hangover ever, combined with your worst cold ever. So it's like, oh my God, life really, you tell me how good it is to be sober and then you put me with this chronic disease that kind of put me a worst hangover 24-7. This is not fair, but it's worse. I'll tell you it's worse than a hangover. So I did not rest when I had COVID because the HR department didn't want me to take a break because it was the time for the yearly reviews for my employees. So nobody knew at the time, but by working, I kind of increased my chances of getting long COVID. And also on the day I caught the virus, I learned that my aunt, to which I was really close, had cancer and she didn't have long to live. So it was a big emotional shock combined to having to push my body and work, combined with the virus and I don't know what what else, but I I got the long version. And at the beginning, I thought I was going insane because I could not function. I could not remember anything. I thought I was crazy. And my boss told me that I was confused. And it was only months later that I read in an article about the usual symptoms. And then I went to see the doctor and I was diagnosed. But I'm an overachiever. I'm a type A personality. I wanted to uh, push through. Like usually when I have a cold, I'm really not listening to my body. I'm like, oh no, I'm going to fight this. I'm going to be better. You know, I don't want to be sick. So I'm trying to work. I'm trying to, I had to stop for a month, but I, I came back to work as soon as I could. And they really did not help me because I was supposed to work half time, but we had emergencies and we had a lot of things to deal with and I had a a full job. So I was in a really bad situation where I was only there half of the time. The, The time I was there, I was confused and really having a hard time, but I had a full load. So I ended up crashing 
And I learned afterwards that when you have long COVID, if you don't listen to your body and you try to push through, thinking that it's going to help to exercise or to, to do whatever, you kind of, it's, it's like counterintuitive. It works the opposite of what we know. Because usually, you know, when we feel depressed or tired, we're like, oh, go run five kilometers, go take a walk, do, go do this, go do that. But with that illness, it's the opposite. You really, really need to listen to your body. So because I didn't, and because my work situation made me push through, I ended up being unable to speak, being unable to walk, and I was bed-bound, and it just took me really, really by surprise. And I hope not, but I might have permanently damaged my body. And I, I do feel guilty because of my ignorance, because I didn't take care of myself. At that point, an entire range of new symptoms arrived that I didn't have before that. Let's say I was moderate before having my crash, then I became like severe. And I was in physical pain 24 seven. So it took me 10 months to be able to watch a little bit of TV. It took me six months to be able to read a little paragraph. I was just lying in the dark. I was not able to be with my family except for a couple of hours because the noise and the light were too demanding for me. And I, I just lost everything that defined me. Because I, I put a lot of my sense of pride and belonging into my work. I was really proud of my work. And I lost my position. I lost my teams. I lost my project. And it, it was weird because I used to be really, really intelligent. And now I was having a hard time. Like just to pay for a few things at the grocery, I was not able to put my card and make the payment. Don't ask me why, but I, I would re remove my car. And I, I would do that like three times. And the cashier was, was are you nuts? <laughs> she wouldn't say that, but her face was telling me that. It's like, what is it with you? You cannot even pay at the grocery store. It was really, really, really difficult. My doctor sent me to see a new psychologist to see how my brain was affected. And he thought that I was faking the test. She said, you did so bad on the memory aspects that I wasn't even sure that you were trying. And I, I, would, I was almost crying. Of course I was trying. I want to do my best and I want you to tell me that I'm intelligent. And she said, you are worse than my Alzheimer's patients. And that just killed me because my mind and my brain is partly lost and it's an invisible disability. I 
don't get a lot of compassion. I, I don't get a lot of understanding because it, it doesn't show, you know? If you repeat to me the same things eight times, I'm not going to remember it. And it's hard for my daughters because sometimes I'm like, oh my God, where is she? She did not come back from work. And I'm in panic mode. And she's like, oh, mom, I told you eight times I was going to that friend's house. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And it's hard to be a shadow of who I used to be. And it's really hard for my ego. But what I realized is that everything I learned in my 10 months of sobriety or 11 months of sobriety helped me cope better with my illness. All the one day at a time, leave in the present moment, moment, be mindful, practice gratitude for what you have, appreciate nature's life, free pleasures. It, it really, really helped me. It, it was as if I learned a recipe to go through hardships. And now I, I did a little bit of improvement on my health. But like, let's say for an example, at the beginning, I was only able to drive 15 minutes. Now I can drive an hour at a time. So instead of saying to myself, oh, this is so bad, I can only drive one hour, and there are people who drive uh, 10 hours and they're not even tired, and I drive one hour and I have to lie down for a day, that's not fair. I'm not like that. I'm like, oh my God, this is cool. I've moved from 15 minutes to one hour. I can appreciate things. I can take a break, I can go into a park, lie down under a tree, do a meditation, and get a little bit of energy back, and then I can be back in the car again. And it's a slow motion, but it's, it's okay. I get to see things differently. So I try to be grateful because now I can smell because I lost that for a couple of years now it's back it's not back to normal but i'm so happy like sometimes i'm just go, oh my god this is a strawberry and this smells so good and i'm like <laughs> smelling the strawberry like a, a nut you know oh my god this is so cool and when we walk i can walk 15 minutes so i'm like oh my god i can walk 15 minutes this is so great look at the sun and look at the trees and Nature is so beautiful. And so it kind of put things into perspective. I'm really, really happy to be alive because I know many people didn't make it. And I appreciate the chance that I have. It's as if losing my purpose and my job and everything that defines me on an exterior level, it made me realize that we do have something bigger inside of us. And even though I'm not the same, my boyfriend and my daughters and my mother and my sisters, 
they they still love me and it, it's it's me i'm still unique it's i don't know how to explain it but uh, it is a big uh, step i'm love even though i lost a part of myself and i read a lot of self help books uh, spiritual books i read about uh, buddha and pain and the books really helped me and uh, i think it brought a lot of uh, spiritual growth it's as if i learned more in the three and a half years of sobriety and sickness that I learned in the 50 years prior to that. And I am grateful for that. I am, I am grateful for the hard lessons. And it's brought me closer to my true self, to my own energy, and maybe more to my true purpose. And it's like chronic illness is a blessing in a sense because I get to learn the same things that a, a person on a deathbed learn. I don't know if you have accompanied people who are dying, but they go through like kind of a spiritual journey. I, I've experienced that with my aunt I was telling you about. She died from cancer. And in the months prior, I was the person she was closest to because she would understand that I was tired more than anybody can explain. We, we were on the same energy level and we were going through the same thing. And she really get me and I get her and we were on a spiritual journey. So I'm thankful for my illness because it brought me that knowledge and it brought me that understanding. And I'm lucky because I get to live. I get to live in pain. I get to live with limitations. But I try mitigate it with meditation, with doing anything I can to take care of myself. And I have taken care of everybody else before in my life so I think it's okay that now I'm learning to to take care of myself but it's also illness is a very lonely path and it kind of puts you in a different category and most people don't understand or don't want to hear about it it's too depressing it's too difficult puts them in front of things that they do not want to see. So I wanted to connect and I wanted to go to Zooms, but I realized that first it made me really tired and also that people were not necessarily connecting to, to me and to what I was going through. And it's as if not many people know how to be truly empathic or understanding. People always go to the fixed mode, you know, oh, do this and do that, or did you do this, did you do that? And it's hard to find uh, good listening uh, people. And most people, 
I think, prefer to turn away from death and illness because it, those are extremely hard things to face. So we do face a lot of judgment, ablaze, gaslighting. People think that they are handling things better and they are so good and taking such good care of themselves that this is not going to happen to them. And they are, you know, you know what I mean? It's like uh, people don't realize their luck and that health is a temporary gift. And I, I did that. I thought I was invincible and I thought I could fight anything. But sometimes it's not true, and there are things that we don't understand, and it's not my fault. You know, sometimes people want to put the blame on me because it kind of put them in a, in a different basket and it doesn't touch them. If you want a summary of my sobriety path, I think my first year was about grief and learning new coping mechanism. The grief of what I have lost during those 30 years of drinking, the grief of losing my main coping mechanism because it was helping me in a sense with social anxiety, with anxiety, with all kinds of things. So I had to go through that, I had to learn how to take care of myself, new coping mechanism. My second year, I would say, was about how to uh, learn to feel the feelings. So whenever something happens, I'm not going to numb. I'm going to feel the feelings and I'm going to cope with all kinds of pain. And I'm strong and I'm getting stronger and I'm able to deal with that. My third year, I would say, was about a spiritual growth. Why do I have this life? Why do I have so much pain? What is it that I can do about it? What is it that I have to accept? Because there's nothing I can do about it. How to put boundaries. I even recently bought a book about how to say I'm sorry. It's an entire book and it's really good because it made me realize that in some level, I'm such a child. Like I numbed and I didn't deal with my feelings, but now they're all in my face and they're too much and I'm too sensitive. And there are basic things that I did not learn. And I was laughing because I think Maybe in all my years of existence, I said I'm sorry five times because I think I'm going to die if I say I'm sorry. So me and my boyfriend I've often make jokes about that. So a couple of weeks ago, I bought a book about it and I learned how to do that. So I think that it's important to stay open and to open your mind and open your heart because there is always something to learn, either about yourself or about feelings and whatever. So I feel that I was building a really good foundation and I was uh, getting uh, better at feeling the feelings. In a lot of ways, my childhood traumas 
prevented me from growing up. And by choosing alcohol as a coping mechanism, it prevented me from addressing the issues sooner in my life. And I feel immature in some aspects of my personality. And sometimes it prevents me from sharing because there is this negative voice in my head that says, oh my God, you should be okay by now. You're, you have been sober for three years and a half. You're 53 years old. Those are five years old problem now. You know, get a grip or, you know, it's like negative, negative, negative talk. And also there's something that happened during the years I was having troubles with my, my daughter. I went all in in a group and shared about what was going on in my life. And this is extraordinary because usually I, I don't share too much because I don't want to be a burden and I want to be there for other people. I want to help. So I rarely ask for, for help. And the um, person who was in charge of the Zoom said something like, this is too big for an informal group or an informal gathering. And she kind of implied that I, I would be better with the professional help. And I understand, I understand the limits, the boundaries, the I am too much, it's too dark. I understand all that. But it was not as if I was sharing my problems all the time to everybody. It was like just this little once try at humanity that I was doing after dozens and dozens of years of coping with everything alone by myself. So once again, I was trying to open up, but I wasn't met with empathy. I got the message again that I was too much and I mostly stopped going to Zooms at that point. And I escaped without expressing that I was hurt. I didn't know better at the time. And it was as if it connected with my negative thought and the way I saw myself and that I was not deserving of love and care. And if I wanted any, I had to pay for it. And it's hilarious again, because the neuropsychologist said that I was too much of a case for her and she didn't have time to take me. <laughs> and she said I, I should seek somewhere else. So I'm like, what? Even the professional doesn't want me? Oh my God. So I laugh about it because I, I like the irony in things. I think it's hilarious. And I didn't have the emotional maturity to deal with this other than escape the situation and isolate. And I just realized in June of this year about the female that sexually assaulted her baby. I realized that prevented me from getting in telegram groups with other ladies or going to ladies-only Zoom or getting the support that I need because I'm on my guard. I'm scared of women. It's thing that I realize and now I'm going to work on it. But uh, it's not logical to put everyone in the same basket. I know that.
but in a sense i feel that i am rejected and i am, i feel like i'm a misfit because people are kind of sensing my walls and my guards and that i i i am under a lot of protection you know what i mean so they kind of sense it or they're scared i don't know i don't know why i'm I'm nobody's best friend. I don't know. I, I'm trying to understand. Last year, I also found out that my mother and my two sisters lied to me and betrayed me for the last eight years. They said it was for my good, but it killed me to, to realize that. And recently, I have been through a lot of events where I was either excluded or being left out, or even though I tried, like I tried to engage, I would say to someone, oh, how have you been in the past six months? How has life been treating you? And the person would say, oh, too much to think about, too much to say, and would turn them back and start talking to other people. And it's as if, okay, I build this strong foundation and all those recent feelings of betrayals are kind of putting me back to the start. Like my loneliness and the feeling of not fitting in anywhere. And it kind of split me into, I was really heartbroken and I cried so much. And I ask my higher power, what am I doing wrong? Because I tried and I tried and I tried, but it seems to never work. And that there is no place in the world for people like me. And it's as if the only thing I find, the only place where I can relate are in books, because in books, People are real and they talk about real feelings and they don't say it's too much or it's too dark or it's too difficult. And that sent me in a really dark spiral. And I kind of just put my knee down and I said, what should I do? Should I just retrieve some society from society and go live in the woods <laughs> with my boyfriend and stop trying altogether? And the same day, I put my knee down and I asked for help. I received a message from someone who told me that she felt a lot of connection with me and she wanted to be friend with me. I got added to telegram groups with uh, other women. And I'm like, what? Woman? And they want to be friend with me? I'm like, oh my God. And then you and Jamie ask me to tell my story. I'm like, oh my God, people are interested in me. I'm like, I feel hope again. You know, it's, I think it's finally time to those wounds because some people gave me hope and to try, try again and see what is it that belonged to me and that I'm doing wrong? And what is, what doesn't belong to me and that I have nothing to feel ashamed of.
And I know now that it's better to deal with the darkness. And there is a quote that says, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. And I think about that quote a lot. I, I need to, to build some self-acceptance and try to reconnect with myself. Maybe before I can connect with other people. So this is where I am at now. I'm really grateful for my sobriety and I'm grateful to be alive. Nat, we are so grateful that you have come into the Sobertown community. Well, you, you've you been a part of the Sobertown since it, it's started. We're part of the same sober crew. And I'm just so grateful that you came here and you've been so brave and so vulnerable to share so deeply. And we love you and we appreciate you. I want you to know that deeply, deeply. We've been fortunate where we've been able to meet twice now. I remember back when you got the COVID in November of 2020 on IES. But you know what? I don't think we really understand COVID or long COVID, how it, it, it affects people, you know, where it just zaps your energy. And I got to see it the first time in, when we met up in Moab, where you could go out for a while and then you had to get rest so that you could continue. But just think you're amazing that you've been dealing with all of these issues sober, mm -hmm. still dealing with, with rejection and, and all these different traumas during your sobriety that have really impacted you to where even a therapist, you're too much for a therapist. But I want you to know, Nat, you're not too much for us. We're here for you. You're part of our sober community, and we love you dearly. So when you first got into IAS and you saw this community, was that a big game changer for you? It literally saved my life. Because if it wasn't for that community aspect, I would have gone back to drinking for sure after that February thing. But it's as if I didn't want to leave, to be left behind. Like I had all those people who were sharing deep thoughts and deep things. And I wanted to go to the next milestone with them and see them the next day and, you know, be part of uh, that group. So the community aspect, I think, saved my life. It's kind of evolved from there too. I can really relate with you when you were mentioning the early days because it seemed like I was more connected with those people in the early days myself. And now as I'm further along in my sobriety, I, I don't feel like I'm... A, is connected like I was there in day zero, day one, one week. I remember just all of us celebrating each milestone that we got to. So I empathize with you with that. And it just seems like people that are around the same milestones 
they get each other. They know exactly what they're going through. And then it's harder for us being in our third year to reach back to them and we can help give them advice and stuff, but it's, it's just not the same. Because it's like everything, the people who are going through the same thing as you are really get it without you having to explain it. But like, let's say if I go to day zero, I don't remember exactly how I was. I might want to give them advice about things that I learned in year two or year three, and it's not even relevant because they're not there. And I'm just in a fixed mode and it's not what they need, you know? But I forgot what I needed at day zero. Within your sober journey, we have these telegram groups. Now you're finally in a telegram group where you're able to connect. You found some people that you can connect with. I'm glad you brought up the Zooms and and that's something that I think that we have to be careful with when we're going to Zooms. And sometimes we just need that moment to share what's heavy on us. If somebody needs to talk, I love to let them talk. And shutting somebody down and possibly saying this isn't the the platform or you made look that day that's probably all you needed was to share that moment right but at the same time with what mm-hmm. happened you were still able to grow out of that too but i think it's these zooms could be a double-edged sword and i think we just have to show each other empathy yeah so sobertownpodcast.com we have a whole list of books there nat and you basically brought us like 99% of those books for people in the sober world to find and not only that you're in the IAS book club an official book club yeah tell us about both of those The IIS Quitlet Book Club is a monthly meeting. We meet every last Sunday of the month, and we either choose a Quitlet book or a memoir or a inspirational book. Like we read things about smart recovery, recovery dharma. We read The Power of Now about mindfulness. We read a lot of scientific stuff with Gabor Maté, Brené Brown also, and Dopamine Nation, those types of books. I really love those meetings. So a book club is really nice. You don't even have to read the book. And the list, I don't want to take all the merits because it's usually things that I see on the IAS or that people suggest in the Facebook group. So I'm just the person who gathers everyone's suggestion. I think it's helpful for people who are new to sobriety and who are looking to learn more about the effects of alcohol or how they can cope with those emotions. Yeah, I think that that list is just amazing how many books you brought to us. So I personally give you a lot of credit because it takes a lot of work. And then even on these sober meetups that we've had, because we've had one in Moab and another one in Asheville, North Carolina, you've been able to help by making lists of who was going to go, possibly not go and and really help, you know, organize that way, too. So 
you've really you've really put yourself out there, Nat. You have this disease that's really shut you down. And you've been able to get to two sober meetups. You've been able to stay sober through all of this. I just, it, man, you're just amazing to me. Thanks. Nat, I do want to ask you, is your relationship with your daughters, has that changed? Yes. We really talked about what happened. I expressed to them my regrets about not being present and not just put things under the rug. We really talked through. My youngest daughter went to her own kind of life crisis because she felt so left out because we were putting all the attention on her sister. But we are really healing as a family, talking about what happened, trying to manage our, our stress and cope with everything that we are feeling. So I think it's a nice aspect of my sobriety because by being there for myself, feeling my feelings, I'm also teaching them things. And they are teaching me some stuff too. So it has been a really a rewarding journey. And also because I'm sick, it's difficult for me to remember things, but I'm always there and I'm always present. And I'm more understanding. So I think it makes me a better mom in some some levels, in some aspects. And Nat, you've also been able to get sober and stay sober, even though your partner still has a drink once in a while. Yes, at the beginning, he, he was drinking a lot. And I had to uh, tell him what I needed. I needed him to put the drinks away from me. He drinks in the house, but I told him where to put it, not to put it under, under my nose, not to talk to me about how good he finds it and how much he loves it. So I put uh, boundaries and I told him I needed the support and I asked for it and I showed him how to give me support. So it's been a journey for us too. He's been really supportive and really proud of, of myself. And he rarely drinks now. So he went from drinking a lot almost every day to once in a while. And most of the time when we go somewhere, he, he will accompany me with a non-alcoholic option. Wow, that is so cool. Yeah. What, one other thing I want to mention, because you mentioned spiritual growth, that it seems like when people get sober, I've noticed this in a lot of journeys, including myself, people want to connect back to their spirituality. Did you see that coming? I did not see it coming, but it really happened to me. And I think, I don't know why we are all going through that, but I think it's generalized. We, we all, after a while, when we connect to our deeper self, I think we realize that we we do have a higher power or an energy or whatever you want to call it. We are connected to the earth. We are connected with all other human beings, with life. 
And when we start to feel, we feel also our body and our mind and the spirituality just opens up. Nat, I do want to say that I'm really grateful that you haven't isolated to this Mm -hmm. last incident. You didn't just like say, forget it. I'm really grateful that for you to be here and be so vulnerable and, and brave. And that's just huge growth. You're pushing through these walls. You're, you're crumbling these walls in front of you. Yeah. And I've shared things that I never shared in my life. And I'm sharing it on a podcast to the world. <laughs> so <laughs> kind of maybe I should have gone with little baby steps. But I, <laughs> I think when we do have opportunities or doors open, we have a choice. And my choice is always to open the door. And is what I've seen with so many recovery stories that we've done so far, these stories are helping people. My wife really relates to you uh, with the isolation and all the noise in her head. We've talked about my wife just adores you because she gets you. And we don't always know that, you know, probably if I wasn't telling you, she's so shy, you would never even know. The mutual, you know, but it's like, Shy people are too shy <laughs> to get out or, or, or tell others that they, they relate. <laughs> and then, but p- there's going to be others out there listening to your story that they've been through that. They, they've, they've been the misfit. They've felt the rejection. They've been through nightmare incidents with their neighbors. And it's okay. You can get through all of this. The first thing you have to do is get sober, stop the drinking, and then the rest will follow. I mean, because you went from year one, dealing with your grief, losing the alcohol and learning how to not drink and stuff. Year two, how to feel your feelings again, unthawing. And then year three into your spiritual growth. Who knows where the rest is going to be there? You know, how, what year four is going to do for you, but I'm going to be there with you. Yeah. Cool. Anything that you would like to say to the person just getting started in in sobriety? I would say trust yourself. Even though you think that you are not strong enough, you are. So trust the process and just go one day, one day, five minutes, one minute. It is going to get better. And You have the strength in you, and you are going to build more and more strength. Boom. Nat, thank you so much for coming here, sharing your story. We have time for you. Oh, thanks. Right? We have time for you. We care. Thanks. Not everybody gets along the same way. You know, I've been in a, because of my background, I've been in a Zoom where somebody told me they were sick of hearing gel stories (laughs) so you know not everybody connects the same within these communities we can learn to stay sober and then we can find those few people that we really connect with and then continue our journey on and then just share our journey as we go so nat we have time for you my wife and i we we love you thanks i want to say that i wish for more inclusion and for people to 
focus on what they have in common instead of focusing on what is different. We got so many people at different levels of their journey and and we never know what somebody's fighting mm-hmm. through at the same time, too. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Nat. It, uh, you're giving me uh, the opportunity to uh, to speak. Well, I've loved sitting here. I just, I took like four pages of notes. You have an amazing sober journey, Nat. Thank you so much. Thanks. Say hi to Jamie for me. <laughs>